Getting a divorce, even thinking about getting a divorce, can be overwhelming, scary, and sometimes exciting. Join divorce coach and mediator Mandy Walker for conversations about divorce. The more you know, the easier it will be to make your divorce healthier, less stressful, and to put it behind you. Here's Mandy. Welcome to Conversations About Divorce. I'm Mandy Walker, and today we're talking about lies and divorce. Hmm. I think most divorce professionals will tell you that everyone lies at some point in their divorce. For many people, they might be the harmless white lies that are told to try to make the other person feel better, such as denying the existence of a new romantic partner. And then there are the lies that are deeply deceitful, cause significant harm uh, and are even life altering. What do you do about those lies? All 50 states in the U.S. are now no-fault divorce states. That means you don't have to prove grounds for divorce. But does no-fault also mean that there are no consequences for these deceptions? Well, joining me today is my guest, Jill Hasday. Jill is a distinguished McKnight University professor and the Centennial Professor of Law at the University of Minnesota Law School. She's also the author of the book, Intimate Lies and the Law. Welcome, Jill. Thanks for having me. I talked in the opening about lies, but it is much broader than this because um, there are other forms of deception too. Right. So I my book covers all kinds of deception, which is any conduct or an action designed to make someone else think something you think is untrue. So lies are one type of deception, but I think even more common are intentional omissions designed to mislead. So you can lie to someone and say, I'm right. not having an affair, right. or you could just not mention that you're having an affair because you want them to reach the wrong conclusion. Right. Or you could not mention that you're going gambling. Right. Or whatever. Yeah. Whatever. Whatever, whatever you're. Yeah. But I, I think in general, actually, if it's a big deception, it's actually very hard to get away with it without lying about something. Okay. Like having an affair, you might not be explicitly saying I'm not having an affair, but you're lying about your time and where you are and all, you know, it's actually hard to get away without lying. Right. Especially with an intimate partner that you share so much time with and you're in such close right, proximity. Right. Who knows with. what's going on. Right. Right. Um, I'm curious about what you have found in your research to be the most common deceptions. You know, one of the, so there isn't any, this is the first book on intimate deception. So there's not a lot of literature uh, to draw on and there's no systematic way of knowing in right. my my bottom line conclusion is that people deceive each other about anything or everything, anything that could matter. I know to one or both people in a relationship could be the subject of deception. So there are certainly some things that are common because they tend to matter to a lot of people, like lies about fidelity or finances. Those are very common, but literally anything could be the subject of deception. Okay. So, um, when and again in my introduction i talked about no fault divorce laws do you think that those no the one of the consequences of of no fault divorce laws is that the person who's doing the deceiving um is protected well and that's actually been uh 
pretty constant even before no-fault divorce. But one thing that courts say after no-fault divorce is established, some courts say, well, you shouldn't have remedies for deception in marriage because we have no-fault divorce. And I really think that's a misconception. No-fault divorce was a really important innovation that freed people from unhappy marriages. You're not trapped. But it does, to me, it doesn't mean that you should be free from all civil liability when you injure someone. So, for instance, outside the deception context, no-fault divorce doesn't mean you can beat your spouse and get away with it because it's no-fault divorce, right? No-fault divorce is just about ending the relationship. It doesn't mean you can do whatever you want in marriage and there's no consequences. Right. So, um, yeah, and I look at it as a, as a mediator. I think the you know, no-fault divorce is completely separate from how the assets are divided. Right. I mean, so for instance, in general, the law is most receptive to claims about financial deception. But what's interesting is in the context of marital deception, you just don't see that. So if two people, if one person says to the other, I'm getting divorced, I want a divorce, or if they even realize, you know, I'm getting a divorce, and they immediately go out to the bank account and drain it, Okay, courts will give you a remedy because that's kind of a fraud on the court, you know, instead of letting the court divide the assets. But if you're in an ongoing relationship and you deceive to take more assets for yourself, um, either say you're using them to fund an affair or in one case I have in the book, a man is arrested, a husband is arrested for attempted rape and he lies and tells his wife he's innocent. So she'll spend her money on his defense. So they end up using $15,000 for his defense. He's convicted anyway. He's guilty. Um, he eventually confesses that he uh, did it. She seeks a remedy when they get divorced, and they say there's no remedy for deception in an ongoing marriage. And one of the things that's so interesting about that to me is why is the marriage ongoing? It's precisely because he was lying to her. Yes. Right? If she had known, she, you know, the relationship would have ended. Um, oh. So courts are – I'm sorry. So just when it's an ongoing marriage – Courts are um, very reluctant to give remedies for uh, deception, and they don't, and they discount the fact that the reason it's ongoing may be because one person is deceiving the other. Wow, wow. So, um, and maybe related to that, it's a, um, I was thinking about oftentimes when the deception involves a financial loss, it's maybe easier to argue for some sort of remedy in a divorce settlement. But what about um, other sorts of deceptions that cause, how do you come up with a dollar figure for emotional pain? Or if your spouse has ruined your credit, so you end up having to pay higher interest rates, or you can't qualify for a loan for a car, what is, um, how do you seek remedies for those? Okay, so one of the reasons why the financial cases are so striking is because they seem so easy, right? It's so easy to put a dollar remedy on, them, right. but still you don't get a remedy. I agree other cases are harder, but the law is in the business of putting dollar values on things that are very hard to quantify. You were negligent, and so now I can't walk. They put a dollar value on that, right? That's what judges and juries do all the time. Yes. What The basic thrust of my book is, Right now, courts will routinely say, if you were deceived by an intimate, you can't access ordinary legal remedies for deception. And what I want to happen is, courts should start with the assumption that if you could sue a stranger for causing injury through deception, you should be able to bring the same claim against a deceptive intimate. So in general, everyone, this is inside deception, inside intimacy and out, is better off 
the laws are more the courts are more receptive if you complain about financial injury or physical injury. Just the law is set up more to give you remedies. It's much harder to get a remedy for emotional harm. But I think if you can prove, you know, so it's hard to bring a claim for intentional infliction of emotional distress, but I don't think you should be barred because you're saying the person who harmed you is your spouse or your ex-spouse. It's not going to be hard, just like it's hard for everyone, but you shouldn't be categorically cut off. Right. So I I don't think I I realized that one one of the examples I was thinking about was Let's say, and, and I suspect this is, it's very common as a, a spouse discovers that they have an STD after their partner had an extramarital affair. Let's say it's herpes, which means that they're going to have that for the rest of their life. What recourse does the innocent spouse have in that sort of situation? So that's an interesting scenario because that's one of the few contexts where courts are willing to give a remedy so if you were deceived by someone who either, you know, lied to conceal they had an STD or um, didn't say anything so you would assume they didn't, or sometimes even if they concealed an affair that led to you getting an STD from them, courts will sometimes give you a remedy. But courts always stress, we're not giving you a remedy because we care about deception and in intimate relationships. We're giving you a remedy because we're worried about public health and want uh-huh. to create every disincentive to spreading STDs. So they will give a remedy in those contexts, but they make clear that it's an exceptional case. And anything outside of that core, they won't give a remedy for. So say your spouse, um, you find out he's been having a series of affairs, and you're very afraid you got an STD and you suffer all this anxiety, but then it turns out you don't. You know, when the test results come back, you're fine. Some people have sued for emotional distress, and courts say, no, we're not, you know, that, that case we're not, we're not interested in. But if you actually receive an STD, um, because of deception, there are a number of courts that have given you a remedy. Wow. So a, a question, a, kind of an aside question here is because like in divorce, it seems like the the practice of the law differs so much by state by state. Are you saying that the, this is a, a general approach throughout the United States where they won't give remedies to um, for intimate partner lies? Yes, there is a general, obviously the law varies state by state, but there is a general reluctance to give remedies for intimate deception. Gosh. And courts tend to say the same thing. Sometimes they say, well, you know, deception is common in intimate relationships, which is true. But then they also sort of assume, and the judiciary shouldn't change that. Like, that's just the way it is, and we shouldn't push against that. Um, or they'll talk about not intervening in intimate relationships. My own view is that either way, the law is setting the ground rules. Right now, they're just doing it in a way that tend to protect deceivers rather than the people they deceived. Okay. Right. Saying there's no remedy means that the person who lied about being innocent in the criminal case or have another case where a man, during a temporary separation, sold the family construction business to his father for a promissory note at a sweetheart uh, price, you know, a sham transaction, the wife doesn't find out about it until uh, they ultimately file for divorce a few years later, and the court again says, you know, that's an ongoing relationship. No, uh, you don't get a remedy for deception in an ongoing relationship. So it's a consistent theme in all parts of the country, even though there are, you know, small variations within states. That sounds very discouraging. Um, I have another... Well, I mean, part of the idea of the book is that I think people may not realize this is happening or they take it as of course that happened you know the idea is to focus our attention and our outrage right 
Well, one of the questions I had was, I, you know, I often um, hear f f uh, family law attorneys talk about judges who do nothing about a party who is lying in court during a divorce hearing. And they say it's because it's so common that the judges either just don't have the capacity to address each and every time that they hear a lie. And I wonder, too, if they've exposed to so many things that nothing surprises them. Is is that part of the problem here? Well, that's interesting because that's an example where lying in court is always prohibited no matter what the case is. So the law in the book says, of course, the person's committing perjury. You know, they should be subject to criminal and maybe civil uh, liability. So it's interesting that people have the perception that it's not being enforced as much. Um, I think courts are worried about, potentially about, there'll be so many cases because there's so much intimate deception. I actually don't anticipate a tsunami of new cases uh, for a few reasons. Suing is embarrassing. You know, it's embarrassing to say you were duped. It's very expensive. Um, you have to hire a lawyer, and a lawyer is not going to represent you unless you have uh, a really good case where you can show significant injury and when the person you're suing has the money to pay a damage award. There's just not that many cases like that. Right. Now, most tort claims, even outside of intimacy, they don't. people don't sue. It's embarrassing. It's distressing. Um, it's expensive. Most people don't have the money that it's, it's not worth them to, it's not worth it to sue. They have no money to pay you. Um, so I don't anticipate that many uh, cases, but I think courts are worried about that. Another thing you could say back is the reason there are so many potential cases is because it's such a big problem, right? right? The people are suffering all this injury all the time. And so I was just, um, you know, based from what you're saying, then I mean, somebody's best chance of recourse or a remedy is actually in the in the divorce settlement because that means they don't have to bring a separate suit. Yeah, I mean, it, I'm not, you wouldn't, right. So a separate suit generally is going to be unsuccessful. People have tried, so the case about, um, people have tried both to get remedies in the context of a divorce case and remedies in a separate suit, and unfortunately both strategies have been unsuccessful. Um Pursuing it in the divorce suit might be easier because then at least you don't have to bring a new case. It might be mm -hmm. cheaper you know, right. to add the, um, add the claim. Um, I also think one of the other pushes in my book is not only to help deceived intimates have more possibilities of success in court, but also what are ways the law can do a better job of regulating intimate deception before a lawsuit begins. Because, again, most people won't sue, and it's better to avoid injury than to have potential redress after the fact. So, for instance, um, how can the law try to thwart people from carrying out their plans? So right now, the law does remarkably little to stop one spouse from expropriating joint assets without the other spouse's permission. And so uh, in the book, I talk about, you know, what are safeguards the law could create that wouldn't unduly burden everyday transactions, but would just make it harder to sell or give away or spend, you know, large amounts of joint property without the other person's knowledge. Okay. Because generally it's better to stop that than to try later in court to get the money back. Right, right. Well, um, um, we're going to, I, I'm sorry to interrupt you there, Jill, but we are going to take a short break here.
You're listening to Conversations About Divorce, and today we're talking about lies and divorce. My guest today is Jill Hasday. Jill is a distinguished McKnight University professor and the Centennial Professor of Law at the University of Minnesota Law School. She's also the author of the book Intimate Lies and the Law. And Jill, could you share your website with our listeners and share a little bit about what they might find if they visit your website? So my website is jillhasday.com. That's J-I-L-L-H-A-S as in Sam, D as in David, A-Y.com. And it has more information on the book. It also has a list of places I'll be speaking about the book. It has clips to various interviews I've done on radio and television about the book and other topics um, in family law and constitutional law and anti-discrimination law. Great. Thank so you, Jill. Thank you. Um, and I'll include that in the write-up in the show description. So I wanted us to kind of jump back a little bit and have another example, which is um, a hard one, but I know that it, you won't be shocked by it. And I hear from readers pretty recently about, uh, pre, pretty regularly about this, um, where the spouse has been arrested for child pornography or pedophilia. And there may not have been a misappropriation of any marital assets, but there's certainly there a loss of personal reputation. There's a, a ongoing cost maybe for therapy for yourself and your children. And you may even feel like you have to move to a different area because of the public scrutiny. What sort of recourse does the current law provide for somebody in that situation okay so these are obviously terrible cases but as you say i'm not surprised i'm not surprised by them um i have different categories of intimate deception that i talk about in the book and one category i call linchpin deception where you deceive about something because if you told the truth you think your relationship would be over and concealing that you're a pedophile or you have a child pornography habit is a great is obviously an example of that. Right? right? They're concealing it because um, another reason they're concealing it is another category of deception I talk about in the book is deception to maintain a pre-existing facade. You know, you want to hide your criminal conduct from your intimates because also you're afraid that they'll they'll tell law enforcement. Right? right. So there's so many reasons that people hide criminal behavior. Um, in that uh, case. It depends on the exact um, injuries, but one possibility would be suing for intentional infliction of emotional distress. Again, it's a hard claim. I mean, right now you wouldn't have it. I don't think you have any remedies. Um, but if the if the world went like the way I said, you could potentially sue for intentional infliction of emotional distress. Um, some people have attempted to bring battery suits where now unsuccessfully, but in the world I envision maybe with more success, so the essential uh, battery is a uh, uh, offensive touching. Someone touched you in a way that's offensive or abusive, and you didn't um, agree, and you didn't agree to it. And in general, in battery law, if you said yes to a touching, but that was because you were tricked or duped, that doesn't count as consent. So some women have brought battery claims saying the only reason I had sex with you is because you were lying to me about something, like you were lying that you were unmarried or you know you know whatever it is. So I could imagine someone bringing a batter claim, like I wouldn't have had sex with you if you weren't deceiving me to conceal this criminal um, behavior. And my view is those cases should go forward. I mean, you're still going to have to convince the, jur the judge and the jury that, in fact, you were tricked and you wouldn't have uh, consented. 
But I don't think you should be categorically banned from being bringing those suits. But um, but as the law stands today, you wouldn't. As the law stands today, you really don't have a remedy. So, what are the chances of getting the law changed? Well, I'm hoping that um, I think that when people read the book, they will be surprised and outraged by a lot of the decisions I talk about, and that will help focus popular attention on the issue. I think one thing that's so interesting about intimate deception is it's something everyone has had the experience of or gossiped about someone else's experience, you know, so it's so ubiquitous, but people really haven't focused on how the law uh, responds to it. I think people think of it as so private and intimate, but when you step back, you have to realize, you know, because it's such a common area of life, of course the law has to confront it all the time, right? People are always bringing these claims. I mean, it's a small percentage of people who are deceived who actually sue, but there's so many people who are deceived that even if a small percentage of them come to court, courts are always having to decide these claims. So I'm hoping that popular attention is the first um, uh, step, both on kind of moving uh, the judiciary, getting lawyers more interested, and also in getting legislatures to think about ways to protect people before the harm is inflicted. So is this um, change going to come about through family law attorneys pushing for change, or do you think That's it's... one way, right? That's one way is bringing more cases. Right. You know, is bringing more cases. I think it, there's sort of a chicken and egg problem because lawyers don't bring the cases because they know they're going to lose, but more cases will put more pressure on the system, especially cases where you can really document very significant injuries of the kind the law takes most seriously, financial. So um, that also requires, right, the case, it requires the, um, for the one of the better word, the victim to be willing to bring a case and to find a family law attorney who's willing to pursue the case and maybe they can right, work together on the the legal fees because I can't imagine that this is an inexpensive endeavor. Right. No, it's hard. It's hard. That's why I said even if the world changes I want, I don't imagine a tsunami of cases. It's hard. Um, right. it, it's hard to bring these cases. But one thing I will say is that in general, we have this myth of America as a society where everyone sues at the drop of the hat. It's just not true. You know, right. bringing lawsuits is ter- is hard. It's terribly financially draining. It's emotionally distressing. It's difficult. Uh, and that would be, if anything, you know, only more true in this um, context. So, but um, some, I mean, I'm sorry, you go. I was going to say, again, again, I'm not an attorney, but I know that there's some states that are community property states here and some states that are um, equitable division states. And um, Colorado, where I am, is an equitable division state. It means that the marital assets don't nest, don't have to be divided fifty fifty. That either party can make a claim for make an argument as to why the assets should be divided somewhat differently. I'm just wondering whether you think that somebody who was making a case for intimate deception in a equitable division state would have more likelihood of finding a remedy like say the in the child pornography case or in the std case would they have more chance of having a remedy if they were in an equitable division state okay. i don't want to speculate on how the case would come <laughs> out but i do but i do think you're right that they have an argument available to them so over time community property and equitable division states have kind of 
gotten much closer as a matter of practice. It isn't as different as it, as it used to be. But in equitable division, the idea is you're supposed to do what's fair. Uh, to date, courts haven't been that receptive to these arguments that deception kind of moves the needle on what division is fair. But I think that is an argument attorneys can make, especially in situations where you can really show that you deceived me and we suffered financially as a consequence. Not because financial harm is the most important harm. I'm not making that claim. Just saying because courts are gener- the law in general is is very receptive to financial injury as opposed to emotional injury. Right. So you might need some other skills or other knowledge to kind of quantify what that emotional in- injury equates to. Oh, but all, oh, but a lot of times also it causes you financial injury. Like yeah. um, you've had to you you're like the credit report example, right? Right. That's financial injury. You can document my mortgage is going to cost this much more because the interest rate they're offering me is much more. And it's a 30, Often, 30 year mortgage and. Right, right. Often financial and emotional injury are tied. Sometimes another way people quantify it is, you know, they show these are my therapist bills. Right. These are the bills for the kids. You know, that it's, it's um, I think there's actually relatively few cases where it's emotional injury pure, right? It's emotional injury that often leads to you're not, you lose your job because you're so distraught, you know, or think about the woman who you said had to move because of the notoriety. Maybe the job she gets in the new place isn't as, doesn't pay as much. Right. 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 So I, I want to go back to something that we talked about in the very beginning and that um, about how courts say that there can be no, I, I forget the phrase you use, but like in a in an ongoing marriage, there is no deception. Well, that, it's just the law is not interested. Right. 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 So w- why is that? What What is the history behind that? Um. I think courts are worried, well, there's a lot of different ways you could phrase it. So one, you could link it to the common law history, which treated husbands and wives as one legal person and said, we don't want to intervene. I think there is still remnants of that idea of the marital unit and the court shouldn't intervene in that unit and should leave it as an intact entity. On the other hand, um, the law is intervening. It's just saying, go ahead, deceive, right? If anything, instead of creating incentives to behave, it's saying, go ahead and deceive. Get it, you'll get away with it, you know? Right. If you're worried about divorce, yeah, go ahead and sell that construction company to your dad, right? That's great. You want it to divide it at divorce. It'll be all yours. Um, so the law is intervening. It's setting the ground rules. And any, I'm not saying everyone knows the law when they're doing this. They're just doing it because they hope they can get away with it. But it's setting the ground rules. And... Um, so non-intervention is impossible. Either way, it's deciding who wins. Right. So what is your best advice to one of our listeners who has been a, a victim of intimate deception? Well, let me start before, before intimate deception. Yeah. So one of the points of my book is I'm not, I think courts and commentators are too inclined to blame people for being deceived. Because in hindsight, it's always easier to say, you should have known, you should have investigated. Also, we like to assure ourselves that only the particularly stupid and gullible are deceived, because that means that we're safe, of course, because <laughs> we're smart. We're so smart. Um, it's very, it's much harder to detect deception than we'd like to think. First, we're just much worse at spotting. We don't have the skills at spotting deception right. than we'd like to think. And an intimate deceiving us is particularly hard, probably, to suss out. Because we're not um, looking for it. We're not looking for it. We trust them. And what they're telling us is usually things we want to believe. 
Yeah. That we want to believe they're faithful. We want, you know, all, the, the the deceptions are things we want to believe typically. Also, social norms tell us to trust our intimates and not investigate. And often it's hard to investigate without jeopardizing the relationship because the person finds out about yes. it. You know? Yes. So I'm not blaming. If you've been deceived, I want you to know you're not alone and it's not your fault. That said, um, someone reading this book could think, you know, actually it would be shrewd to do a little bit of investigation um, uh, to the extent I can. Uh, one thing I did in writing this book is I looked at a lot of manuals written by and for private detectives, and I found out a lot. I mean, uh, public records don't have everything you think they're going to have. They're not always complete. They're not always online. But there are a number of things you can find out in public records, and at least for some kinds of deception, like where someone is inventing a whole new identity, that could be a way to uh, to, to, to figure it out. It's harder... Um, other kinds of deception are like what's in, what, where it's more what's in someone's head or harder. Also, a caveat I talk about in the book, many kinds of investigation you would like to do are actually against the law, so not a good idea. People have um, had to pay, had, had been successfully sued or had to even gone to jail for searching someone's credit reports or emails yes. or tax returns. Yes. All these things are protected and for good reason. So one irony is, Courts tend to blame people for being duped, but the law itself, for good reason, makes it harder to investigate, right? right. The point of this book is not everything should be open. Um, that would be identity thieves' paradise. Just that, you know, it, to the extent if you – and I also don't want the point of the book to be you should not trust. I think it would be horrible if someone said, I love you, and your first thought was, I wonder if he's lying. How could I investigate this in public record? I want to see, I want to see your tax returns and your credit report right, before we right. go on the date. Right. <laughs> right. That said, you know, going in with your eyes open isn't a bad idea. Right. You know, because afterwards, it's going to be it's going to be very hard. Hmm. Well, Jill, we were uh, right up on time here, and this has been a fascinating discussion, and I know that it will be really eye-opening for some of our listeners. I want to thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. And this is my guest today is Jill Hasday. She's Distinguished McKnight University Professor and the Centennial Professor of Law at the University of Minnesota Law School. She's also the author of the book Intimate Lies and the Law. If you've been deceived, it sounds like that would be a good resource for you to, to get. And Jill, you want to share your website one more time? It's Jill Hasday. J-I-L-L-H-A-S as in Sam, D as in David, A-Y, dot com. Thank you. Being deceived is painful. And as Jill just talked about, part of that pain is coming to terms with your own naivety, your trusting, you're not seeing what's going on and feeling that you should have been smarter. That part is part of your personal growth journey. I think a good divorce recovery program will help you. But the other part about being deceived, the financial losses and the emotional pain the, from the consequences, that's real. And I think it's important for you not to just assume that there's absolutely nothing that can be done by it. Jill's perspective that she shared makes it sound really grim. But I do want to encourage you, if you're in this situation, to really get competent legal advice so that you can know what recourse might be available to you through the legal system. Do get legal advice before you start doing the hunting down and investigating on yourself so you don't want that to backfire and find that you have a claim against you. I think 
you know, so often when it comes to divorce, it means about making sure that you have all the information that you need before you jump to a conclusion or make a hasty decision that you might later regret. We want you to have make, be making informed decisions throughout your divorce. Thank you for listening today. If you hop over to my blog, SinceMyDivorce.com, you'll find a synopsis of this conversation and you can follow me at SinceMyDivorce on Twitter. And I know that Jill is on Twitter as well, at Jill Hasday. And I'm also on Facebook. I hope you'll join us next time for more conversations about divorce.